At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. We want to welcome everybody to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast where we're seeking to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors in our denomination or wherever that would hear this podcast by interviewing and gleaning wisdom from men with pastoral experience. My name is Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in the beautiful city of Marion, Indiana. If your favorite color is pea green and salmon pink, let me tell you what, our building is the building for you because our carpet... (laughs) has this beautiful color of green and a pink floral pattern that uh, you just can't look away from. So if that's the kind of thing that you, uh, that you, you know, strikes your fancy, uh, come on down to Marion and try not to get distracted by the beautiful carpet that we have in our building. But we're not here to talk about um, atrocious carpets. We're here to interview uh, the pastors of the RPCNA. And this week we have Brian Wright, pastor of Sterling, Kansas. Brian, thank you for joining our podcast today. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to uh, do this interview. Um, I think you know this. I interned at Hope Community, where your brother um, serves as a, as an elder there. So I think at the end of this podcast, I'll know which uh, of my favorite Wright brothers uh, there are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know who's going to win that one, but. Uh, uh, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> well, our uh, our first question for you this uh, afternoon. Um, is I don't think one that we've actually asked any of uh, the previous guests before. So you have the honor of uh, answering this question for us. Um, in the life of a pastor, you know, sometimes we try to schedule our weeks um, kind of down to the minute or maybe down to, um, you know, quarters of an hour, that kind of thing. Um, what does your um, regular week look like? How do you go about structuring your time? I guess what's the what's the ideal um, itinerary or schedule for you, Brian, and then uh, maybe what's the real? Well, yeah, I've struggled a bit with the how to how to put together the ideal or how to how to think about how to rectify the real with the ideal in that area. <laughs> um, I when I was in seminary, I found it so helpful to really plot out my time really carefully, and and my wife was working full time for the first while we were there, and. I figured out if I could, you know, it's coming off of working a full-time job. I was used to working all day. And so I would, I set up my schedule. So I, I knew when I was doing which classes homework at which, you know, d- throughout the week. And I had it all scheduled out and was on a, you know, I could look at it and, and that worked really well in seminary. It wasn't perfect, obviously, but um, it meant I had the time in the evenings to spend with my wife. I wasn't studying as much in the evenings. And um, so I, I'm, I tend to be wired that way. I really enjoy 
working it all out and it's all neat and things like that. And I've found the pastoral ministry just doesn't work that way exactly. <laughs> um, you can you can do a certain amount of scheduling. Um, and so I do, I would say I still have a fairly scheduled layout for my week, but I've had to sort of uh, come to terms with the reality of the things that come up in the week and also just the nature of sermon preparation that it's not it's not an input output kind of thing where you put in this much time and you're going to get this kind of result. Um, and there, there are going to be weeks when I, the sermon comes very quickly and often I know that's because the Lord has more in store for me later that week. <laughs> um, and there are other weeks like last week, it was the one where I was pushing it towards the end of the week, just because it, it, you just never know how much time it's going to take. So, so I guess in terms of the ideal um, I do take Mondays off and, and Lisa really helps me. My wife really helps me in making sure that that's a day that I'm away from pastoral things. And so that's kind of my Saturday when I get, you know, stuff around the house done or go, go shopping with the kids and stuff like that. Um, but I really try to protect the Mondays and the other elders here really help with that. Um, and then, um, Tuesday is really, this is a Tuesday today, but this is not of the ordinary week, but usually I try to not schedule too many meetings on Tuesdays. Cause that's when I really jump into sermon preparation um, in a big way. And we can talk more about sermon prep, but um, I find if I don't get that first day of real solid study in, I don't have the raw material to be working on throughout the week. Um, so generally I have a, a big day of sermon prep on Tuesdays and then Wednesdays and Thursdays, I tend to have more, more counseling meetings, more regular visits with um, members and things like that, uh, regular phone calls. Um, we have our session meetings usually on a Wednesday night. And um, so the middle of the week tends to be more full of meetings. And then Fridays, um, I whatever hasn't gotten done on the sermon yet, by that point of the week, I, I sort of um, focus more on Fridays and um, try to get all the service preparation done. We have a morning service and then we have an afternoon teaching time. And so try to get the morning preparation all done by the end of the day, Friday, if possible. Um, and then Saturdays, I'm sort of doing final preparation for the teaching or for other things. And that's sort of a bit of a cushion if things haven't, if I haven't had time for things that way. Yeah, that's, that's the general shape of the week. And it usually that I've had to sort of content myself with that being the general shape and then not, not trying to schedule it out too much. Um, and so I'll have, you know, times in there I'll, I'll plan to pray at this particular time or spend time in reading or something like that. But that's the general shape of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now you and Joe are both in the uh, same presbytery. Have you, uh, has Joe told you about his meticulous weekly planning schedule? No, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting you on the spot there, big guy. My meticulous week. Why would you, why would you call it that? Yeah. Well, I, I call it meticulous one for how you, or how you described my planning and seminary, you, you called it uh, controlled chaos. <laughs> um, but no, so it, you are pretty meticulous, though, with your time. You've got your morning, your evening, your afternoon, shepherding type stuff. It's yeah, I, um, yeah, I am. Um, that's what I remember Jeff Stuyvesant saying uh, when he wrote the review for one of my exams. I think it was the personal godly or pastoral gifts, uh, pastoral and evangelistic gifts in the review. And he somehow noted, and I don't think him and I ever talked about this, but he noted that I was uh meticulous in time management and said that, uh, said that the ministry wouldn't be like that. And so far I see that yes and no, like I've, I've tried to, uh, 
I'm always trying to impose as much structure as I can uh, to keep things. So, but, but I would say I'm similar to you, Brian, in the sense that, I mean, I do have like pretty um, and go out of my way to, to silence notifications and things like that during sermon prep times and things like that. But then there are blocks of the days, generally Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays that are wide open for shepherding things, though I will at the beginning of the day time block those things out with a general idea. I've just found that that just helps keep the day ordered. But just a helpful um, and I preached in Ephesians. I've told you, you and I have talked. I'm in Ephesians right now. I know that was your first series you did uh, there at Sterling. So I just preached a couple Lord's Days ago on um, redeeming the time, making the best of the time, most use, whatnot. And um, just in the uh, Sabbath school hour, it came up in a principle I had learned recently. Somebody applied, you know, the principle from the Old Testament, not leaning to the corners of your field uh, to time management. So not over optimizing uh, your schedule to where you don't have any flex in it or you don't have any space for that person who drops by your office or calls or something, a, a visit goes longer than you intended or something like that. So there's a little more wiggle room um, in most of my afternoons. But, you know, a morning routine and sermon prep times are um, are pretty lined out. I remember John MacArthur saying when he showed up and got the call to Grace, um, he basically told him, and I don't spend this much time right now, but he basically told him at that time, I need 30 hours for both of these sermons, like together. So 15 each sermon or something like that. And he's like, like that, that is it. You know, I'll do anything above that, you know, as far as shepherding and all of that goes. And we can talk about how John MacArthur's ministry might be different, you know, as a, a preacher versus somebody who's shepherding a small church or whatever. But just this, just this thing that preaching was so serious that it was like this totally guarded and totally shut off time. And so that I do try and, stick to but yeah this podcast episode isn't about me and my my time we're more interested in brian well i have found that that if you don't fight to protect that time it's it's it just so easily fills up with other things um yes and i've I found that particularly for for sermon prep and also for time for prayer that it's just yes. everything else is going to um push in on those things and and so that reminder to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer is so sort of thankfully echoing in my mind throughout the week, you know, that it's, it's something that um, you're going to have to, like you said, you, you kind of, you are going to have to fight to protect those times. Yeah. Do you, um, and kind of as you schedule your time and you're fighting for those times, do you find like productivity apps to be helpful? Do you use a calendar? Are you more of a, like a paper and pen itinerary guy? Um, I have a calendar for events, but I don't, I don't use a productivity app particularly. Um, I have a, I have a week, I've, I'm a pen and paper guy for a lot of things. So I have a bullet journal that I've planned out what I need to do for the week and stuff like that. So that's, that's usually how I do it. Yeah. I, I love bullet journals. Uh, that's what I yeah. use as well. I, I, I get distracted by the screens and the productivity apps and they end up just, you know, taking me to YouTube. The next thing I know I'm watching, you know, more Matthew Everhart videos right. or <laughs> something like that. Right. <laughs> I started, I started the week start of the week i gotta sit down with a bullet journal before i even open email yep. before i get any of the notification i've got to sit down and think about what's going on this week or else i'm going to get pulled into something and you gotta go do that i guess one other aspect of time management i've we've thought quite a bit about lisa and i together have thought quite a bit about is the evening times um, because um there are often so many evening events and so we set aside friday night as family night 
and, and nothing gets scheduled on Friday nights. And that's, that's a, um, sort of an oasis for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's been a really, really great thing to get in that time with the kids. And we're not, we just don't plan for anything those nights. And then even, even the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there were periods of time when I had something most of those nights of the week and it was just too much. And we had to, I remember Jerry O'Neill really cautioning us against overscheduling the evenings. So um, I know one thing that Dave Long did back in the day was to have, you know, several meetings in one evening. And so that's something that I've done where I'll have, you know, I had one Bible study at seven, I had another one at nine and it was a college student Bible study at nine because they were they didn't mind staying up late. And so that made it, man, I wasn't out two nights in the week. It was just the one night. And um, so it's still something I'm sorting out right now. We don't have a ton of them right now, but um, it's, I, I definitely see it in my family when I'm, um, if I'm out too many nights in the week. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good tip. I think that guys could take is, is like you're saying, stacking, stacking the nights. I know when I was a member at Southside and I was doing an internship, uh, they would take me on visits with them and they would do like visits, like Blitzkrieg style. Like we'd all meet at the church two by two and then you'd shoot out and you'd have like four visits scheduled, you know, from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., you know, I mean, it's boom, boom, boom. I mean, you'd be about an hour at each house or something, but it, it was kind of like these almost like Blitzkrieg events, you know, to kind of get things in when you could, and they'd schedule people and, and things like that. It's one thing I'm curious about, um, and, and I'm thinking about doing myself, I'm just curious if you've done this, and if so, to what degree. In Jay Adams' book, Shepherding God's Flock, he, he recommends in there, to some degree, like making your schedule known, uh, to the congregation, um, just for various things, uh, you know, so that they can see, Hey, their pastor actually, you know, works a schedule too, and doesn't just show up on Sundays and preach, you know, he's a, he's a common man in that sense. Uh, but then also, you know, they can at least see that, Hey, Tuesday is pastor's big sermon prep day. And so kind of, if something's not a big emergency, I should probably wait till Wednesday or something like that. Have you, have you done that at all or what you're thinking on that? Yeah. Yay. Nay. Yeah. So I have made known, um, actually in the front of the bulletin, it says it lists office hours and, um, that's Tuesday to Friday. And it's, it's generally the hours that I'm expecting to be. Um, it, it isn't when I'm necessarily in the office because I, I, there, I have regular scheduled visits that I'm gone from the office during those hours, but it's, it's sort of the idea that, you know, people know that they can call me in the evenings. We can talk at other times, but it's sort of like if, they know that, that I'm expecting to work during those hours. Um, and that helps as a reminder that I'm not available on Mondays. Um, but so I haven't, I haven't shared, you know, I'm gone at this time on Wednesdays or those kinds of things. But so I do, I do think it's helpful though, for people to know that there's sort of an expectation that I'm, um, I'm not just working one day a week. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, right. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, you touched on uh, preaching and so kind of already somewhat touched on your preaching prep. But before we get into the preaching prep, um, this is a question, as Aaron's noted before, this is kind of our flagship question, along with uh, the, the funny theological question that's tossed in at the end. But preaching is the primary means of grace. Every member that listens to Lord willing is preached to every Lord's Day, and so this is what fascinates pastors. It, yeah, it fascinates a lot of uh, members as well, and so just interested, kind of the overarching, um, kind of what's your philosophy of preaching, and you could, I guess, take that, you know, how do you preach, and why do you preach uh, the way you do? You know, there's kind of different schools. There's 
expository, experimental, redemptive, historical. There's all of those things. Would you say you you could be pegged in one of those categories, or is it just you've kind of developed your own uh, Brian Wright style of preaching over time, and then kind of yeah, just with that, why? Well, I'm not sure I I w- could peg myself in any particular category there. Um, I know I have a more redemptive historical bent, um, just in general, in the way that I think. Um, but um, and I'm also, you know, I'm only five years in the ministry, so I feel like I'm not. I, I still some <laughs> certainly lots and lots of developing to do. So yeah. Um, but I, I think as I think about an overall philosophy of preaching, um, my my first and my primary um responsibility is to preach Christ to to whoever is there and so it's not just to the it's it's to the members of the congregation it's also to to the lost um maybe members of the congregation um but it's it's to visitors but the the goal is to preach Christ and um and I know I know it's a quote from somebody I don't remember who it was the saying about the idea is that you know we all are going to have our hobby horses um it may as well be Christ, you know, your, your hobby horse, you're going to have something you keep harping on and you really, it really should be Christ and him crucified. And so mm-hmm. wanting my people to know that um, no matter who they bring to church, um, they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ every time that they come. And that doesn't mean that every single sermon is going to be an evangelistic message um, by itself, but it's um, what somebody once <laughs> told me that you need to imagine that there's an Orthodox Jewish person sitting in your worship. And if they can, get to the end of the service and agree with everything you've said, you haven't done your job because mm-hmm. you need to preach the Messiah. You need to preach Christ and mm-hmm. from every page of scripture. And, um, and then along with that, the idea that, that preaching is a call for people to respond. It is the word it's, it's the call of God for a response. And um, in that sort of dialogue of worship, it is the Lord speaking to his people and there's an expected response. And so, you know, Despite Dabney's uh, problems, significant problems in some other areas of his thinking, Dabney's idea that, R.L. Dabney's idea that, you know, the end of every oration is to make men do, is, is to call for response, um, is something that really resonated with me in seminary. And so as I preach every week, I always have a homiletical point that is an imperative. Um, and that imperative may be, um, it may be, to trust or to believe, but it's, um, it's still calling for a response. And so if you think of the catechism saying that, you know, it's the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe uh, um, concerning God and the duty God requires of man, that that needs to be communicated from the word of God every week. Um, what, what response is expected. And so in that respect, I find um, I could teach from a passage of scripture after just an hour, you know, a couple hours of preparation pretty, pretty easily. I could just teach a lesson on it, but to take what God is saying with the authority of God's word and to call people to do, you know, to respond again, whether that's an action or, or a response of faith and belief and trust um, is, is the task of, of preaching um, is a task of expositing and then preaching the word. And, and that just takes so much more wisdom. Um, it, it's, it sort of surprised me how much time has to be spent really working through wordsmithing you know it's not words you know we're not wordsmiths in the sense of trying to manipulate or something like that but spending time really really trying to clarify what 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 i'm saying from you know what god's word is saying or or present it clearly um and and that takes the that takes the time in some ways um yeah we were interviewing ryan hemphill last week and (laughs) 
he said, you know, most of my job is just sitting in my chair and mindlessly looking out the windows. I'm trying to articulate or figure yeah. out how to articulate, <laughs> you know, these, <laughs> these truths. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've thought before as I'm sitting here, you know, if I'm really wrestling with how to, how to say something, it really does look like, you know, I've just sat here and looked at my hand for however long, you know, it's just like, but I'm, you have to, you have to do that. You know, and it's, that is the labor of, um, trying to bring people along with you and not, not get ahead of them, um, and have, have them understand the word clearly. Cause the goal is not, uh, I guess another thing that, that has stuck with me, I think it was Brad Johnson said this to me once the pastor in Topeka, um, and I think he may have gotten this from somebody else, but he said, you know, at the end of his sermon, he wants people to not to be saying, you know, how did he, how does he do that? How does he come up with all that? But to be coming out of it saying like, how did I not see that? Like, how did I not see that in the word? And, and I think often the difference there is being able to present it in such a, such a clear way that it's not the cleverness of my words that brings it across. It's, it's just the content that's been presented in such a, a simple way that, or a straightforward way, not simple necessarily, but straightforward way that, that they just are confronted with the content, not the, not the, how it's, how it's communicated. Yeah, that's good. I'm a, I think I, in last week's interview with Kent Butterfield, I mentioned that I'm, I'm reading through uh, the imperative of preaching right now, but I mean, just kind of what you highlighted. I mean, it is kind of the macro structure that Scripture puts forth, you know, explain and apply, uh, indicative and imperative. And the right. ratio may vary per sermon, you know, um, as far as how much time you look at the, you know, Romans is arguably three quarters indicative and a quarter imperative. Ephesians is half and half. You get First Peter and Hebrews, and they're scattered throughout. I don't know what the ratio is, you know, they, uh, but... Either way, those are basically the the two step move, the the tango, if you will, of of preaching. And so that's uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. And sometimes it can just be a call to repent and believe the gospel. I mean, that's that's an imperative uh, that that should fit in in about any about any sermon. So what um you you did mention your and you kind of I guess already touched on it some, but just maybe in a little bit more detail again. I think uh, members, are, um, certainly some, are curious of these things. But then also, I remember, <laughs> I remember back um, when Aaron and I first met, taking Denny Pruto's class, and I it was a preaching course, intro to preaching, and I didn't honestly like taking that class right then because it was a, it was a great class, but the how do I go from text to sermon um, wasn't at least as and I don't, it was no fault of Denny. It was just that I didn't have the background, you know, of how to study a text and all of these things. And so, you know, I think guys are interested, you know, how do I prepare a sermon from start to finish? And so what does that prep look like for you as far as how you're engaging with the text and how you're moving from text to sermon from uh, any, any given text through the week? Well, I've, um, I, I always start in, um, the text in the original language. So I'm, I'm always preaching from a particular passage, even if it's a topical sermon, I've, I've chosen a passage to, to choose for, to preach from. I'm normally I'm preaching through a book, but um, I always start with the text in the, in the original language and do a rough uh, read through it. And I do, I jot down a rough translation. Um, and um, I, I do, I do want to just make a plug that if it, it is such a, such a hard thing to really work at those languages, but um but just want to encourage people to put in the time that if you are planning to preach that, that, you know, 
you can preach without knowing the languages, um, but it's such a such a valuable thing. And I remember C.J. Williams saying in seminary that often there'll be a time he's coming to a passage. He says, I don't know what I'm going to say about this passage. And then he works through it in Hebrew and he says, I don't know how I'm going to say everything I want to say about this passage. <laughs> and I, I I've do heard that line that, from him. <laughs> yes. And so I do find that so often as I'm just working through the text. And as I'm doing that, I'll I'll pursue, you know, I'll do word search, you know, word studies along the way. And um try to work out um, the general structure of the passage and stuff like that. I, I tend to follow, I still actually follow most of the steps of Barry York's um, preaching prep process that he gives in the preaching class there, where you start with, you know, a key, key or a, a theme word and then a theme phrase and, and sort of work your way towards an exegetical point that said, this is what the passage means, you know, in the way that it was, when it was written to the people it was written to. Um, and so I try to, a lot of that's on Tuesday. I'm just spending time in the text working on those things. Um, and I, I, I tried to dis discipline myself not to look at any commentaries for that first time until I've already developed my own exegetical point. Um, and then I'll start to, before I develop a homiletical point, then I'll start to test my <laughs> exegesis against trusted commentators. And sometimes I have to go back to square one. And, um, uh, but, uh, it's an opportunity to, to sort of test where I'm at at that point. And then I'll develop a single homiletical, homiletical point. Um, and so I, most weeks I'll have that on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and then I'm already working on a framework in my mind. And then I do tend to follow a pretty standard uh, standard for me way of going through things where it's almost always, you know, homiletical point. And then I have three, three to four to five points. And those are, um, you know, explain, illustrate, apply, explain, illustrate, apply under each point. Um, and so that, that again, I tend to be sort of, I like to think organizationally. And so that helps me to sort of plug things into that. Um, and so throughout the week, then if I've done that Tuesday, as I'm driving around, I have a lot of time. We're a pretty spread out congregation. We can get into that, but um, we have about half the congregation within a square mile. And then the rest of the congregations up to 80 miles away. And so um, I have time where I'm, driving quite a bit. And so I've had to learn to think um, well without paper or without um, keyboard. Like I'm just driving and I've got to try to organize, okay, how am I, how am I going to communicate this point? What kind of illustration would work here? And um, sort of trying to redeem that windshield time. Um, so that's a lot of that happens during the week where I'm brainstorming illustrations and things like that while I'm doing that. And then um, Friday, I, I do write, I pretty much write out the whole sermon word for word um, in bullet point form. Um, and and that is actually what I end up taking into the pulpit. So it's not in paragraph form, but it's, you could almost read it um, if you wanted to. Um, and I don't end up, I don't read it, but I have it there in front of me then in bullets so that what I often am doing, I just look down at the page and I see what the paragraph's about and then my head's back up and I'm talking about it. Um, and, and I have wording there that I've already worked through so that if I need to fall back on it, or if I think this is really important that I get this communicated very carefully, I have it right in front of me and I can use that. Um, so it's sort of a mix between an outline and a manuscript um, in that way. Um, and that's what I end up, so that is what I end up taking out, taking into the, the pulpit. So I, then Sunday morning, Sabbath morning, I, I come here to the church and I, um, I actually preached the sermon to the empty pews. Um, that was Micah Ramsey uh, worshiped the, at Eastvale when I was in college. And uh, Micah Ramsey 
did that and, and talked talk to us about that. And that, that has been really helpful for me. Um, and I inevitably at that point realized there's too much and I have to cut some things. And I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm always, always uh, have more than I need to, than I should have there. And so that's kind of beginning to end the sort of the process. Yeah, yeah no, know, that's uh, good. Go ahead, Joseph. No, you, I was just saying that was good. Yeah. Um, so David Whitlow, Church History Prophet, RPTS, um, he told me when he's you know putting his sermon together and he knows that he's going to have too much, he always has kind of in parentheses OPT, which stands for optional, so that uh, if he needs to, he's got it, but he doesn't have to go there. Um, I've tried to use that sometimes, but you know most of the time I'm barely able to get out a whole sermon every week as it is. So yeah. I don't know how you guys come up with the OPT stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, actually, there have been, uh, I've noticed that of all the times, so my wife, Lisa, is an excellent uh, listener and uh, good feedback giver. And um, uh, most of the times where she's after the service, she's, you know, we'll get home that evening, we're talking, she said, you know, you said this thing, and I don't know, you know, she's sort of is probing a little bit. And I, I really, yeah, I didn't mean to say, I wasn't planning to say that almost every time it was something I decided to say off the cuff. And <laughs> yep. I sort of, I hear that in the back of my mind that, you know, it's uh, often when I have that bright idea in the moment, you know, I, I try not to, you know, I know the spirit can work in those things. And there was just a couple of weeks ago, there's an illustration that there was a way of communicating something that I hadn't thought about all really truly came to me during the sermon and I went ahead and, and did it. And that's not, that's not the way I normally work. So I'm not, I don't, you know, I recognize the spirit can work that way, but generally speaking, nine times out of 10, if it comes to me in the moment, it, it hasn't worked out. Well. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That reminds me. Um, I think both Joseph Friedley and Matthew Everhard would probably be the, the main sources of like my own, what I do preaching wise uh, nowadays. And Matthew Everhard has said the same thing you just said, like, He's not somebody that is good thinking on his feet, like stuff just doesn't come to him in the moment. But anyways, well, I mean, he, he writes a full manuscript and, and I do that now. But he also kind of like you just mentioned, and, and I try to as well, get that into my head as much as I can. So that with, you know, a highlighted word or something, I can glance down, see what these next couple minutes of thought are about and try and get my head back up and actually preach to people and, and not read to them. But um, I don't know about you, but I am somebody I've tried. Aaron can think through things. Um, I need to write through things to to think through things. And so I, I don't know. Is that how you are? Because there's there's been a few times where I've tried to go and just think through a sermon. And I just end up, you know, this hasn't happened now because I've learned myself better. But like in seminary, I just have to scrap everything. And I end up having to go back and write it, write it all out anyways. And so I've just learned, like, I need to write myself clear. Is that what you found or yeah i do tend to be i think i think as i write and that i it helps that's i sort of verbally process in that way or i don't know if that's not verbal i don't know what you'd call that but um i but i, I would say i've had to force myself to learn to do like i was saying like when i'm driving i've got to i've got to learn to to do that without a piece of paper in front of me or a screen in front of me and that's that's really challenging yeah i think that's why it's you know um so helpful what you're saying as far as starting your your big sermon prep day on tuesday because you get all of that in your head so wednesday thursday friday saturday even if you are doing these long drives or you're in the aisle at the grocery store um or i mean sometimes some of the best uh, sermon illustrations that i've come up with is just whether either i'm in bed and i can't sleep or i'm taking a shower yep. you know um <laughs> 
But if you don't have all of that information in your mind, that's just not going to happen. So that's kind of like uh, when we think about shepherding, you know, David Whitmer's book, um, Shepherd Leader, he talks about micro and macro shepherding and, and the macro shepherding. He really focuses on the preaching of the word. Um, micro shepherding is more when you're in the, involved in the lives of uh, the people there. So what's uh, what's your philosophy of shepherding and, and what does um, shepherding the flock look like for you kind of week in, week out? Well, I, like I said before, I'm only five years in and, and I would say this is an area that I particularly would like to grow more in. Um, and, and I think the last few years have been um, pretty tumultuous in terms of interpersonal relations um in general just with like the way different people approach COVID and knowing how to Mm -hmm. approach people personally and those kinds interpersonally those kinds of things has been complicated by that and so so I would say I'm still uh very much working on uh on how to to shepherd well um to just to to fill in a little more about this how how our congregation is here um we we love it here we love being in Sterling uh, the small town about 2,500 people um, and we have a small Christian college here called Sterling College. Um, so we have, like I said, we have about um, maybe 40 people that live in town. Um, and then the other 40 or people or so that are um, regularly worship would be anywhere from um, 25 or 30 miles away to 80 miles away. Um, so we have, that has, that is a, is a challenge in knowing how to shepherd well, because there's half of the congregation that I'm going to run into all week long because you're seeing them at um, the grocery store and those kinds of things. Um, you know, I came back from the grocery store the other day and I, I told Lisa, I didn't see anybody I knew. <laughs> and that's a weird thing. You know, that's like we we almost always run into people. And then then there's the other half of the congregation that we really we pack our Lord's Day so that we can get the time together. So so in terms of shepherding, we have um, we have Sabbath school, morning worship, fellowship lunch, and then an afternoon teaching time every week. So we have a fellowship meal every week. And that um that is a really critical time, I think, for getting to know people, for spending time together. Um, we have our congregation divided into shepherding groups for the ruling elders. So I don't have a shepherding group, but the the ruling elders each do. And so, um, you know, they'll make a point of getting time with the, the people in their shepherding groups over the meals. Um, so the fellowship meals are an important part of it. Um, I try to make a point of... Um, making watching for who in the congregation isn't able to participate as much in the the kind of more natural um life of the congregation and so i have some regular visits um weekly visits and weekly phone calls with people um that are not as able to be a part of the life of the church and aren't going to have as much of that face time with with the elders and things like that so um you know at a time someone who's lost someone you know have gone and um, I still have actually a regular uh, visit with a, a widow after her husband passed away and um, just sort of finding ways to, for those who are who are more naturally going to be isolated or not as connected to try to find a regular way of, in my week of, of having contact with them. Um, and so I try to do, Lisa and I um, watch for what kind of events are happening in people's lives. And so we, in town, there's a lot of events we can go to right here, you know, um, plays and performances and athletic events and things like that. And you get a lot of, we get a lot of time with people that way. Um, and, uh, visiting, I've tried to visit people at their workplaces as well. And just to get to know what kinds of things they're doing. Um, I have a number of counseling appointments regularly, regularly. So there's sort of some hands-on, um, direct shepherding that happens and those kinds of things. Um, I, I had had a really good experience of discipleship, um, one-on-one 
man-to-man discipleship um, in when I, we lived in Manhattan, Kansas, um, Jonathan Haney was my pastor, such, such a blessing to me in the times we met individually. And then um, Garrett Mann, um, who's now a pastor up in New York, was he took took me on uh, for some discipleship training. And um, I really like that kind of work. And I'd done, done some of that when I was in Manhattan. And, um, and I, I will say that that has not uh, materialized in the same ways that I had hoped um, in pastoral ministry here. And I know different places work different ways. People are wired more for different kinds of interactions. Um, but it's something that I want to to do better with or, or to do more of again. Um, I think there's really great value. And I look at the times of growth in my life. It was when most often when one mentor was really investing in me. And so I have done that um, with mixed results. <laughs> um, so so all that to say, I'm I'm. I want to grow in this area and it's, it's a challenge in our uh, context here. Yeah. Well, you said, you know, you're only five years in, but you've got four and a half years of experience on Jill and I. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I didn't... I so, so often w- wishing I had 40 years of experience, but that's got to come somehow. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know you were in Manhattan. Yeah. So, so I went to Geneva college, met my wife, Lisa there. She went to K-State for grad school and I worked, we put each other through grad school basically. So I worked for an auto parts company out in Manhattan and, and she got the the letter for uh, her uh, offer to to get an assistantship to go to K-State um, the same week that Jonathan accepted the call to Manhattan. And uh, we had actually, we had expected to go to KU because her parents both worked at KU at the time. And um, anyway, so that, but the time we saw that the church needed help and um, we really wanted to be part of that church plant, and we got to be there for the really exciting time. It was when the church became um, mission church. Then, be, then we organized, and um, so we were there for three years, uh, 2011 to 2014, before I went to seminary. Mm-hmm. How many ruling elders do you guys have there in Sterling? Oh, we have three ruling elders. Three, and then what's what's roughly the size of the congregation? So we have 100 and uh, what is it now? It's it's 110, 115 members somewhere in there. Um, we only have we have about 80 or so at worship um, every okay. week. Yeah, well, I'm kind of curious. No, you you go on, Brian. I was just gonna say I'm I'm really blessed by the elders that, that we have here, and that I think we have a great diversity of gifts. Um, and uh, so I'm so thankful for each of them, and they they're each their encouragement to me in different each of them in very different ways. And mm. um, I've been thankful for for getting to work, work with them on these things. One thing I'm curious to hear myself on this um, right now, because we just had uh, John Duke go to emeritus status here in Westminster. And so for the time being, we've got an elder apprenticeship going on right now. And Lord willing, our hope would be to have an election and, and hopefully at least maybe get, get one of these guys that's in it um, come the fall. But at this point in time, basically, I do have my own shepherding group. I've kind of taken over John Duke's um, shepherding group so as not to overload the other ruling elders at this time. But just thinking forward, um, because that's almost been the case since I've been here. So just thinking forward, how how do you, and I think you've already touched on it some perhaps by saying uh, you try and pay attention, you and your wife, to those members that aren't as plugged in to the normal ordinary body life and kind of give some of your attention to them but how do you um 
kind of seek to oversee the entire flock somewhat in a little bit more general way? Is it is it through just a lot of phone calls? Is it through that that focusing on particular members? You know, being a man that doesn't have like your particular shepherding group, and certainly all of these elders are responsible for all of the congregation, of course. But um, how how do you kind of take that shepherding group philosophy, but see it as as applying to the whole? congregation. Am I making sense to you kind of what I'm asking? Yeah. And I would say something I'm still trying to figure out in some ways. Um, I think we're small enough. I know you just call this a mega church, but we're still small enough <laughs> at the point that I can, you know, I can know um, everybody in the sense, you know, personally, I, I do know them um, and I don't know them all as well as I know um, some of them, but um, there is still that um, just reality of, of what are, how RP churches generally work is that, you know, people personally, um, I have struggled a little bit to know how to, because I think by default, I do have people that I'm paying more attention to. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of the danger of sort of the squeaky wheel, getting the grease that, um, I tend to handle more of the urgent kind of things. Um, and so I, I have a feel, I, I do end up being a little more reactive than proactive, um, because, I'm, um, the counseling situations and things like that, that I work on, I'm, I'm responding to things often. Um, and so, so I would say it's something I, I don't have the right, the full answer to yet. So whenever you, if you do end up going away from having, I'd be curious to hear from you whenever you figure it all out and you could tell me how it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know, but I doubt I'm going to be the guy to figure it out. Maybe we'll, uh, We'll make sure to ask this to a couple more experienced guys and maybe That's we can great. all and figure can it listen. out together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, so, so this is another question actually that uh, I think two of these questions, the first one we asked you maybe about the work week and this next one are kind of ones that we've, we've advertised that will be asked of men on this podcast. And yet you're the, you're the first guy we've, we've asked this second one as well, but what are the, you know, and we asked, you know, three, three most influential books, if it's one, two, three, or four or something in there, that's, that's fine. But um, whether that be things you read in seminary, things you've read since or earlier on, just for, just for ordinary Christian life, uh, what are three of the most influential books um, that have most impacted your own life? And then kind of with that, and maybe those would be the ones you would recommend, but if there would be different ones, uh, that you would recommend to uh, just the ordinary church member, just some great books to uh, for doctrine or life, uh, both. Um, yeah, what are, what are, would have been the most influential to you, and then what are a few that you you'd recommend? Your, your brother told me you were really into the Twilight Saga. Yeah. Oh man, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> need, need I say more? No. Yeah. I, I uh, can't say that I've ever read those books. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. Uh, I, when I was, um, I went to TFY a long, long time ago. Um, they had us read Augustine's Confessions and, um, that had a huge impact on me. I just remember, um, sort of in two, two different ways. One that, um, it just, it brought the reality of, of faith and repentance, uh, to, to the very, the nitty gritty of daily life and the struggles of a young man in particular, um, in such a, a vivid way for me and to, to, it was, it hit, hit me at just the right point, you know, between junior and senior year of high school, um, needing to grapple with, with my faith, um, and how it impacted so much, you know, my whole life. And, um, 
it was a TFY in general was such a fantastic experience for me. So I'm always encouraging your, your young people here to go. And um, it was so that that book, just in the practical, so the practicality of faith, the the um, the reality of faith and repentance in the life of a young man was so important for me. And then also some of the stuff he gets into philosophically is, it was just like mind blowing to me. And I, I was very philosophically sort of minded at the time. And I, it was so refreshing to me to get to like grapple with just the nitty real life kind of things. And also like go off into these, you know, just get to think of wonder at the, the world that God's created and time and memory and all yeah, these that, things that are just, that section yeah. of the book threw me off. I, I was really yeah. jiving with him. And then once we get to the, the time discussion, I, I was lost. So I'm, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> well, I, I didn't say I wasn't lost, but I still liked it. So <laughs> um, it hit me it, certainly at that point. Um, and we could go into, you know, I sort of I'm not as philosophically minded in some ways now as I was then. But so that was a really impactful book. Um, and then this is sort of unusual, but um, C.S. Lewis is That Hideous Strength, mm-hmm. um, which is the third book in the Space Trilogy, which is fiction, um, is a book that has has had a huge impact on me years i keep rereading it and um i read it high school or i I remember i didn't understand it the first time i read it and then i read it again and um understand the subtlety of of spiritual warfare and the kinds of ways that satan can be at work in this world um really struck me that first time and it was really or that because the second time i'd read it and it was really um helpful to me in that way and i think it has a lot to speak to our current uh things going on with artificial intelligence and things like that i think it's interesting to look at um Uh but then then i read it again after i'd had a job where i really worked full time and there's a whole side of the book that totally opened up to me and then i read it again after i'd uh been married and there's a whole marriage side of the book that's so rich and so i feel like it's just something that um has has been a i've just enjoyed it again and again different points in my life so that hideous strength um and then more recently, I'm really indebted to my brother-in-law, uh, Kyle Finley, that he recommended a book called Competing Spectacles huh. by uh, Tony, I think it's Reinke. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's subtitled something like Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And he's he has some great insight into how we function in our world of images. And I think his theology of... Um, the second commandment is maybe not fully developed. He, he sort of hasn't um, really worked it through in some ways, but but his analysis of why we function with images in our culture the way that we do is so um, insightful. And and it's, it's had me, it really helped me think through how I'm functioning in this world that we live in where, the, where images are so prevalent and so used. And so, I mean, they're just in everything. And um, talking about the spectacle of the cross being... You know, a spectacle you know not that and he's not advocating images of christ but he's you know the, the spectacle of the of the cross itself being what we are supposed to um focus our hearts and minds on and um something that i just keep coming back to that's a more recent just in the last couple of years that's been a really impactful book this this might uh, i don't mean to take you off guard here with this one but since we're talking about books um you know we're, we're reformed people we, we love reading um if, if a new believer comes to you and asks, you know, what, what, what should I read? Um, what, what might you suggest to them? That's a good question. I, I think it really, well, this is a stalling, stalling uh, way to answer the question, but it, I think it really just depends on what, what kind of uh, background they have and things. And so, you know, do they need to 
they need to understand just the basics of of the Christian life. I think spiritual disciplines for the Christian life is a really um, great, uh, has been a great blessing to me. And actually, could might have mentioned that as one that was a great impact to me. Although I think that for some people, they get too focused on the, the you know, checking off the box. I got to do this, this, this. Um, so somebody else, you know, maybe knowing God uh, by J.I. Packer. Um, but again, it depends on how much of a reader the person is. Um, so I hear that there's a new uh, grass market press imprint that will have lots of great resources we can hand mm-hmm. to new believers. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I told Joe we- that we're, we're basically grass markets uh, marketing team because the first three to four of our guests were all writers for them. Yes. <laughs> so, so we're wanting some of those proceeds is all we're saying. There you go. Yep. Yeah. So what did you, um, did you have any Brian uh, recommendations? I thought it was fascinating. I'll just say that you mentioned the, the Lewis book we had Nathan Eshelman on and he, you know, with a liberal arts background was really recommending uh, fiction uh, just, just to kind of work that other part of them the mind and help you develop an ability with words. And I've had a, a member recently, he was, uh, he was an elder in the PCA and uh, he's just been really motivating me to at least make fiction part of my reading plan. And he gave me like a really helpful layout of like things to start with. And, and Lewis's space trilogy was on there. And so hopefully at some point I'll uh, get my hands on that and be able to uh, discuss that work with you. But did you have any, um, I know Aaron kind of asked about maybe the new believer, but just just in general, did you have any recommendations for just just ordinary member uh, of the RPCNA uh, that would be good to get their hands on and, and check out? Yeah, I, I did want to recommend Competing Spectacles. I think that the one that I've just mentioned that um, it's a it's a short book and it's, um, it's again I think just so so important for the world we're living in today. Um, I, I think also another one. Um, that I, I taught lessons through a couple of years ago um, is Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruits. Um, so Edward, Jonathan Edwards could be a little bit tough to, to jump into. And, and so um, I'd want to coach somebody a little bit on how he structures his chapters. But once you, once you understood his stay in his format, he's very much very consistent with how he formats his thoughts. And that going through first Corinthians 13 that way was, it's been such a blessing to me. And mm. I think it's in a day when, um, well, we always need to love each other, but I think um, it's particularly helpful right now just to look at, at each of these. He really just works his way all the way through uh, those qualities of love in First Corinthians 13, and, and it's such a, um, it's a, a wonderful way to, to meditate on God's word along with someone. And um, I don't agree with all of his interpretation to the, each of the terms, but I think he's it's excellent. And I've, I've heard other people say this before, too, so this isn't original to me, but the last chapter on heaven as a world of love is just mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, um, it's mm-hmm. worth the price. Of the, well, it's free. So you can find it free online. It's where I said the book. <laughs> it's, it's, nice. uh, it's a fantastic chapter, um, especially when you read through the whole book and it's so convicting um, because of how unloving we so often are. And then you mm-hmm. come to understand of who we will be in Christ forever. Mm-hmm. And, and just what a joy that is to anticipate. Um, and then I'd also recommend, um, Another newer book um, on the conscience. Uh, it's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's mm-hmm. by Andrew Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, uh, some of our Baptist brothers. And um, J.D. Crowley is actually a missionary or a long-term missionary 
Um, and I think his insights into conscience are actually really helpful because he's approaching it from a cross-cultural mindset. And um, one of the insights of the book is that if you are too sensitive in your conscience, you can't do missions very well. You can't mm. do cross-cultural mm. missions because you do, can't differentiate your cultural hangups from your scriptural uh, conscience. And um, so I, we went through this as a Sabbath school class, adult Sabbath school class, not too long ago. And I, I just think um, conscience is um, spoken of in all kinds of unhelpful ways these days. And it's it's often used as a way to shut down conversations. And um, you know, that's my conscience on this issue. And it's like, well, that's not how conscience works. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> And, and I think he talks about um, calibrating your conscience. And I think in a really helpful way uh, where he talks about, he's basically saying none of, none of us have a perfectly scriptural conscience. And so we all need to be working constantly to better bring it in line with God's word. And um, he talks helpfully about how to, they talk helpfully about how to do that. And um, they, they don't get You know, I don't agree with them on everything, obviously, but um, and I think they're a little too strong on, primary, secondary, tertiary, and how they, they break down some of those things. But just in terms of the how to deal with differences in the church um, in a day when conscience is being thrown around a lot, I think it's a really helpful book. It, they also go through every, I think they go through every time that the word conscience is used mm -hmm. in the New Testament mm -hmm. in a really helpful way. Um, so that's one that I'm uh, I'm often recommending these days. Did you get that? Do you remember who published that? Uh, I, I think it might be Crossway. I'm not, I can't remember. It's just conscience. And then the subtitle is what it is, how to train it and loving those who differ. All right. Thank you. I'm writing that down. Great. Well, and having said all that, I, I know someone actually, I know a pastor who once said to me, he doesn't take book recommendations from pastors because pastors give them too freely. He only takes book recommendations from other people. <laughs> So take all that with a bag of salt. Uh, right. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I I think you're right, though. I think that would be a would be a helpful book in today's world, uh, the social media world, and people just like you're saying, just wanting to shut down conversations. I mean, we hear in the world, "That's my truth." Um, you don't so much hear that in reform circles, but you know, you can just set, shut things down with a, a liberty of conscience statement or something right. like that to where it's like, you can't say anything to me about that. Um, and I, I, I remember reading James Bannerman one time and he talked about, you know, the conscience is the liberty of the conscience is bound by the law. Ultimately, um, <clears throat> that's where liberty ends in a sense. And so, uh, and that's every person's conscience. And so, you know, God has thoughts on things and we should be willing to talk about that. And like you said, conform our thoughts to the thoughts of Christ. That's, that's the goal. Um, all right. Well, we have come to the fun theological question. Um, we've asked, as I've said before, we've asked the first round of guys, could Jesus have gotten sick? We asked the last round of guys, their thoughts on individual guardian angels and then last week with Kent Butterfield, we started a new round and we're looking to settle the debate from Genesis chapter six. Who are the sons of God and who are the giants or the Nephilim that were around in the days that the sons of God went into the daughters of men? So who are the sons of God and then who are the giants or the Nephilim 
what says Pastor Brian Wright? Well, I'm so glad that I know exactly the right answer to this. And you're all, anybody who doesn't agree with me is wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this well, is not uh, a conscience uh, issue is what you're saying. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, there you go. This is hard, cut and dried, black and white. Yeah. Um, well, I think a key point in all this is that you have the idea of procreation happening here. And so um, I'm not convinced by the arguments that they're angels or that they're fallen angels. Um because I don't see any other grounds in scripture for seeing that angels could procreate with humanity. Um, I think that's a, a common idea in sort of apocalyptic uh, antichrist sort of lore of the day, but it's not, it's just not something that I see in scripture. Um, and so I, I'm inclined, again, it's not original to me, but I'm inclined to the idea that it's, it's the, uh, a description of the decline of the godly line um, that the sons of God are the, um are the the seed of the woman you know when you think about the seed of the woman the seed of the serpent they're the sons of god that should have should have been marrying uh believing wives and instead were marrying um unbelievers and um that still leaves me with not a whole lot to to not a whole lot of insight into who these giants or the nephilim are um except that i think i do think that there's sort of a blending of the um it's possible that there was a blending of the strengths of the different communities. And so you were people who had the advantages of the covenant. Well, you have to, depending how you want to talk about it, the covenant community or the, the believing line, and then combine that with whatever was going on in the, the unbelieving line. And that that may have um, been these sort of uh, given them advantages um, that would classify them as something particularly uh, for, for uh, formidable. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, 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 again, basically, that was basically in line with what Kent was uh, getting at last week. My own thoughts, I think there's no warrant whatsoever for the sons of God uh, being angels. Uh, the, the Nephilim, the giants, I'm more open to discussion on that. I like the way Kent Butterfield put it. The relationship between the sons of God are the sons of God and daughters of men. And the giants or Nephilim is is not a causative relationship in the text. It's just merely descriptive. It's just saying that mm. these Nephilim were around in those days. But like you said, it's possible they could be, nevertheless, uh, offspring um, of these, of a mixed nature. I think that's a legitimate view um, as well. I, and, and then you kind of have the view, too, that, that I've heard from others um, that it's possible these were men who, and this would be somewhat with, consistent with what you were thinking, men that are kind of maybe in the covenant community, but of the seed of the serpent, and they could even be uh, possessed men. You know, you could think of Judas and Satan going into him, and there are these, in a sense, and that's where perhaps the demons could come into this Genesis 6 narrative, uh, that they were these, they were possessing men and they were great persecutors of the people of God. I think I said this last week, it's fascinating. You can trace Goliath uh, back through the Anakim who can be traced to the Nephilim. And I believe there was a global flood. And so that there couldn't have been any physical descendants of these giants in those days, but there is, seems to be this spiritual nature to these people. So whether they were offspring, whether they were just around, uh, that's, I think, open for discussion. But either way, it seems they were these these great persecutors of the people of God. And like you said, often that can come about most effectively. It can if if you kind of have the benefits of both worlds, if you will. Um, so, no, that's that's good. That's good. 
Aaron, you got any other thoughts? Have, you, have your thoughts developed on this since we started asking this one long week ago? You know, there's the the saying that the reason Presbytery meetings take so long is that the same thing has been said, but not everybody <laughs> has said it. And I think that holds true here. I think anything that I would add has, has already been said, other than to say that I guess uh, if the Nephilim are just genetically modified individuals, we could say that this is the first uh, development of GMOs. There you go. <laughs> so with that, we'll end with a cheesy, a corny joke. I know that uh, being a pastor, it's kind of a prerequisite that you give corny, uh, cheesy jokes. So there you go, everybody. This has been a, another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. Our guest has been Brian Wright out there in Sterling, Kansas. So we thank you for listening. We ask that uh, if you like this episode, you'd rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, please share this on uh, social media as Joe and I do not have one. So this is a total word of mouth uh, um, kind of a podcast. So there's no advertising um, except for grass market. We'll advertise grass market all day. As far as you guys <laughs> advertising for us, that would be fantastic. So whether you eat, drink or banter, do all to the glory of God. Yeah.